Welcome back to another edition of the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, we are brought to you by NPT Education. Check us out. We specialize in mentoring for school leaders. We're here to help. NPTeducation.com. Thank you all so much for the incredible feedback. I've had so many great conversations with so many listeners since racism episode or part one. Uh, today we are. I am recording racism part two. And again, I'm so excited to be here with everyone and working through what is obviously a topic that is really currently on our minds, but I think we've all realized should always be on our minds, and that is what is making this moment so special. Um, in in tragedy, a voice is definitely developing, and um, I really appreciate you joining me because all I'm trying to do here is process the book White Fragility while also reflecting on my own white fragility. And the reason I'm making it a podcast is I'm hoping that if I'm doing this, if you can do it along with me, um, it can help. So White Fragility, the book, is actually on back order. Um, I still encourage you to order it. It is a must read, but I will continue with this podcast and one more. It'll take three podcasts altogether to get fully through the book White Fragility, and then we'll move on to Ta-Nehisi Coates, and then I also plan to do a panel discussion. That'll be what I think will be Racism Part 5, and that will be with a bunch of educators, and we'll, that's when we'll sort of bring this all back to education, right? Because this is an educator's podcast, and right now it's becoming, I'm, right, on, on purpose, I'm doing this more as a reflection on racism and learning about white fragility and then eventually learning from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. But then in that fifth one, we will bring it back, putting together a panel of educators and sort of say, all right, all of this has happened in the world as of late and all of this has been happening in the world forever. What can we do better in education? That'll be episode part five. Um, and then after that, we'll see. So a huge shout out to Robin D'Angelo. Uh, again, the book White Fragility just changed my life, changed my thinking. Uh, and I just couldn't appreciate more how much she gave us with this incredible blessing of a book, White Fragility. And obviously, as we talked about, White Fragility is big. There's a lot to it. But clearly, we need to understand it in order to break it down. We need to understand white fragility in order to break down our individual racism and to break down overall systematic racism. You know, I think a lot about these podcasts before I record them, and it just dawned on me that for, for all the different things I've done over my 20 years uh, or 25 years since I started college, this might be the most blended academic and personal experience I've ever had because I truly am learning from this book, but I am truly trying to reflect with you as I sort of give a book report while also self-reflecting. And I just, incredible exercise. Again, I appreciate you going through it with me. So there's a couple thoughts I want to start with before I get into chapter three that have sort of emerged for me over the last week since my last episode. I've really I really like this new, and I, I know it's not new, but it's new to me, at least in its dichotomy, this new thinking that has developed very publicly that it, it's not just being racist or being not racist. Now it's racist, 
non-racist and anti-racist. And I think this is such a good step that is coming together for so many of us that it's it's not good enough to just think that we're not racist. We need to be anti-racism and we need to be actively pursuing uh, that side of things. That I think it's such a good step for so many people and it's been a good step for me to just see that. It's not good enough to be not racist. We need to be anti-racist. Um, also, from a discussion I had with my college friends this week, this really struck me. Um, it is important that individual white people, of course, that we become more quote-unquote woke and more aware of racism and white fragility and both within ourselves and around us. We need to understand this better as individuals. But even more so, we all need to interrupt and change the overall system of racism. And so it's not just a bunch of individual change that's going to that's gonna be all we need. We need that, of course, but we need systematic change as well. Both fights are important, individual and systematic. But when the dust settles from this current moment, we can't forget the systematic fight. And that's going to be really important. And I'll talk about what I've learned about that a little bit more a couple um, episodes from now. Uh, and lastly... For me personally, I just want to continue to find ways to not be a quote-unquote tourist in this fight against racism. That's what's really bothering me still. I think the epitome of my privilege as a white man is the fact that I can really focus on racial issues for a period of time. I can dive in. I can think. I can read. I can act on it. But then I can just go back to living a life sort of free of race whenever I feel like it. And that's the white system that I live in, that I can become a really embedded tourism in all this, this, these thoughts, but then I can get away from them if I want. And what's, I need to, and frankly, the way to overcome that is I need to remember my whiteness and all that it brings with it in every single moment. In the book, White Fragility is helping me see all that my whiteness brings with it. Um, and it's different. Like, my, my people of color can't escape the effects of race on their every moment. They don't have that freedom I have to be a tourist in this racist thinking and 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 behaving and sort of thinking about it and then going back. They, people of color don't have that, that luxury and I don't want to have that luxury anymore. I don't want to just be a tourist when it comes to this thinking and feeling. I want to always have this with me. And I think that goes back to episode one, which is first step to that is I need to remember that I am a white man and that white part comes with so much socialization and remembering that is a good first step. All right, chapter three, racism after the civil rights movement. This was a really interesting chapter. It really changed uh, my understanding of sort of systematic racism. And what D'Angelo says here is that systems of oppression adapt so that they can persist over time. So racism itself has adapted over the years so that it survives. So crazy to think of it as like a living organism, uh, living, living, living organism. Uh, Pre-civil rights, it was pretty cut and dry, you know? A lot of people were outwardly racist. Some people weren't outwardly racist, but it was pretty cut and dry. Now racism has adapted in order to survive, and we need to understand those adaptations to identify its many new forms. So this chapter talks about three forms of racism that I'll summarize for you now. The first one is what D'Angelo calls colorblind racism. So MLK, Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote sort of set this one up when he said, a man might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. 
And that sort of helped racism adapt because suddenly um, white people could say, oh, I don't see race. I, I just judge everybody based on what I know about them. Race has nothing to do with it. You know, we, and if that's, if we, colorblind racism sort of says, if we pretend not to notice race, then there can be no racism. And many white people do this, claiming that they see everyone the same. You know, they don't see race, they just, they're colorblind. They just see people and they judge people on their character. In reality, we instead just don't notice all that comes with race. So we try to pretend that it doesn't impact our thinking, but really if it still, of course, impacts our thinking. But by ignoring that and saying we're colorblind, nothing changes. Because racial bias, you know, is often unconscious. It's often below the surface. It's not right in front of our eyes. But then when we feel we are colorblind, and, and this is what happens. We, we tell ourselves, we are colorblind, we don't see race, that doesn't matter to us. But then, if anybody accuses us, accuses us of racial bias, we become very defensive. And we, we don't, I don't, no way, not me, I don't see race. I, I, don't, that's, I don't see it, I see individuals. And that again is white fragility, stepping in to make us defensive, to stop the conversation, and most importantly, to keep the system in place. So be on the lookout for colorblind racism. It's, that is, we, we aren't colorblind. We are socialized in America. When we see people, things subconsciously, if not consciously, emerge in our thinking. And we can't pretend to be colorblind. That is a trick that racism has adapted to survive. The next one is aversive racism. Aversive racism. This exists under the surface of consciousness as well. So people that, are, uh, that have some aversive racism, they paint a very positive picture of themselves on the outside. Things like, I have lots of friends. I have of color. I have a lot of black friends. I judge people as individuals, not based on race. I'm a good person. I'm fair with others. You know, but then without realizing it, these same people do the following. They rationalize racial segregation in schools because schools need to be safe. They rationalize segregated workplaces by saying things like, quote, people of color just don't apply here. They use, quote, racially coded terms such as urban, underprivileged, diverse, sketchy, and good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, un end quote. They also oversell their cross-cultural relationships. So they will, in their defensiveness, they will talk incessantly about how many friends they have of different cultures or different races. Um, and, 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 quote, attributing inequality between whites and people of color to causes other than racism. So they won't say, oh, this inequality doesn't exist because whites versus blacks. This inequality exists because of this social construct, or this person worked harder, or this was a, a, a better neighborhood to grow up in. So they give all these reasons other than race for inequality. So aversive racism is people painting a picture of themselves on the outside and then really using coded thinking and coded language in order to not show that they're racist, but instead to hide, subconsciously, frankly, hide that they're racist. Um, this one was tough. This one was tough for me. Um, I've done a lot of this. And before reading this book, I never would have thought that these moments may have been me having a racist moment. But, you know, I have definitely, I have, I do have 
many friends. I do have many friends of color, and I have for my whole life since I since fifth grade when I moved to public schools, and I've definitely sort of held that up. I can't remember saying it explicitly often as a defense against racism, but I definitely have felt it. I have felt that I have all these friends from different backgrounds and races, and therefore I can't be racist. I also think, yeah, I meet everybody, I judge them as an individual. Um, I'm a good guy, you know, I like to think I'm a good guy and I'm fair with people. But then I've done stuff, like I, I've been in conversations where I've talked about, you know, I'll say urban schools, right? And I never thought anything wrong with that until I read this book. And, you know, it doesn't mean we can't use the word urban, but you have to think about these coded words we use. And if you if you could replace them with the word black or the words people of color, then you shouldn't be using that word right there. And so, you know... When we start to talk about, we'll talk about it more today, but like racism's on a continuum. This aversive one is tough. This one hit me. And this one really made me think and really made me feel raw. And, you know, people that practice aversive racism, they find ways to deny their racist beliefs and to ignore them, all with the intention of appearing of appearing educated and enlightened. So aversive racism, man, it can come across as I'm totally not at all being racist, but this is how racism adapts. This is what we need to be looking for. These people, and I've been included, can come across as extremely not racist, but the deep thinking that they have still leads to a hidden us and them mentality. And the them is people of color. And they're often depicted as not as good as whites. So when we talk about safe neighborhoods, generally we're talking about white neighborhoods. When we talk about good schools, generally we're talking about white schools, right? So this us and them mentality that's hidden in these coded words, it's it's aversive racism and it, it has to stop. It creates a division without overtly expressing that division. All right, the last one in the chapter is called cultural racism. Research shows that, quote, white children demonstrate a sense of white superiority as early as preschool, end quote. One study that D'Angelo talks about asked 626 white college students to record every instance that they came across anything racial for a period of six to eight weeks. The students in the study reported more than 7,500 accounts of blatant racism by white people in their lives. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (sighs) Racial humor and stereotypes were prevalent at new levels when people of color were not present. So this study found that if people of color aren't around, racism shows itself more. And you know, all of this holds in place what is called white solidarity. We're in this together. And white supremacy. We are better. And so this cultural racism that exists, it is socialized into us early on, really, really leads to some bad thinking along the way. And again, it's this individual type of the socialization happens and then as individuals we discreetly practice cultural racism and then that upholds systematic racism that's all around us 
and it's just amazing. I, so for me, this chapter, it was so interesting to hear that racism adapts, to treat it like a living organism, as I said, and watch how it's not as simple as racism in old textbooks. There's all these new ways that it shows itself. And, and as a white man, I'm, I'm not free of this. I have been socialized even though I've had a fairly diverse life for a, a majority of it, and I say fairly diverse, I've still been socialized in a culture that has colorblind racism, that has aversive racism, that has cultural racism, and I'm not free from the impacts of that socialization. Uh, you know, it's funny because we've taken steps as a society and really what has happened is now we are expected to hide our racism from people of color and to deny it amongst other white people. So therein lies the adaptation. Way back in the day, we white people could just be racist. I'm just, I'm outwardly racist. That's not really as acceptable anymore. We're expected to hide it from people of color and deny it amongst white people. But we're still not expected to challenge each other on racism. Still not expected to challenge each other on racism. White people challenging white people is not socially acceptable yet, or at least not comfortable. And that's a big next step. And so that's how you take this knowledge of these different adaptations of racism, and then you start to fight back against it by pointing out these types of racism, not just pointing out overt textbook racism, pointing out these types of racism. And that's how, going back to the beginning, that you be more anti-racist. All right, chapter four may be the most mind-blowing chapter of a book I've ever read. Chapter four is called, How Does Race Shape the Lives of White People? This whole chapter is about the experience of being white. And almost all of what D'Angelo presents is shared by virtually all white people. Of course, not all white people, but virtually all white people. This chapter continued to help me realize that overcoming racism is more about understanding my own whiteness than it is better understanding others. So as I go through this chapter, I'm going to use the pronoun I, just as D'Angelo does in her book. I'm going to use the pronoun I as I go through it. So how she put this chapter together was she points out different things that as white people we get, okay? So it's, it's sort of white privilege, for lack of better terms, on steroids. This is, if white privilege really taught us, like, here's like the sort of the benefits we get, like the this chapter shows us, it just shows us how, how large the scope of is the, how large the scope is of these benefits. All right, so first, as a white person, I get a constant sense of belonging. Quote, I was born into a culture in which I belonged, end quote. Some examples she gives. Most of the doctors and nurses in the hospital where I was born were white. Most of the people cleaning the rooms or preparing the food were not white. When I turn on the TV or watch a movie or read a novel, most of what I see is white. Commercials I watch, mostly white. Teachers, counselors, coaches, classmates, mostly white. The people I read about in school are mostly white. When I go to parties, people are mostly white. When I go to work, the people are mostly white. When I go shopping, the people around me are mostly white. My entire life, 
is mostly white. I That blew my mind. And this all gives us this sense of belonging. We go through all of what I just outlined and it just creates within us a sense that we belong. We never have to deal with a sense that we don't belong. What a luxury. What a luxury. I put a big quote here I'm going to read from D'Angelo. Quote, in virtually every situation or context deemed normal, neutral, or prestigious in society, I belong racially. This belonging is a deep and ever-present feeling that has always been with me. Belonging has settled deep into my consciousness. It shapes my daily thoughts and concerns, what I reach for in life, and what I expect to find. The experience of belonging is so natural that I do not have to think about it. The rare moments in which I don't belong racially come as a surprise, a surprise that I can either enjoy for its novelty or easily avoid if I find it unsettling. End quote. Unbelievable. Again, the experience of belonging is so natural that I do not have to think about it. I got two reflections on this one. Um, I think I talked to my last one. I was in the Keystone Club and my local boys and girls club growing up. And in eighth grade, we headed down to the national conference. And um, a a very important mentor in my life, his name was Milton Berry. Um, He was a black man. And he... Um, was head of the club, and he drove us down. Uh, he had one person helping him, Calvin, and then it was, I want to say, seven to ten of us that made the trip. And we drove a van down. On this trip, I was the only white person. So it was a, a big moment in my development, especially in young adolescence, to, for an extended period of multiple days, be the only white person. And Mr. Barry was one of the most important people in my development as a human. I can't thank him enough. He's no longer with us. We miss him every day. But one thing about my relationship with Mr. Barry is when I was in these moments where I was the only white kid, I was luckily very accepted. And, you know, um, my black friends would just call you. They just treated me like one of them. Just treated me like one of them. They didn't. They didn't play into the like I don't belong. They did the opposite. They made me feel like I belonged, and I internalized that. And I became very comfortable in situations where I was the minority because in those situations it was generally around friends, and they made me feel like I belong. But Mr. Barry was always pushing me as much as. He understood that I loved diversity and loved being around it. He was always telling me, but you're white. You're white, man. You're white. Don't forget you're white. You're white. And I used to push back and be like, who cares? That has nothing to do with anything. And I learned, and I'm learning now more than ever, that he was so right. He, that was him telling me that I need to understand my whiteness. And the best lesson he ever gave me on this, and some of you probably remember this story, but the best lesson he ever gave me on this was on the drive down to DC, we were in Philadelphia and we were in, a, I'm not gonna say an urban section, I'm not gonna say a tough section, I'm gonna say we were in a black section of Philadelphia. And in this section, there was a really famous cheese, Philly cheesesteak place. And I was so excited to get this cheesesteak. And so we pulled up, and while, as we stopped the car, I was ready to jump out of the car. 
And Mr. Barry said, Timmy, where are you going? Where are you going? I said, I'm going in to get a cheesesteak. And he said, oh, you are? And I said, yeah. He says, oh, you're going first? I said, yeah. He said, so then he tells everybody else in the van to stop right there and to not go in. So I said, well, I'm going in. So I walked into this cheesesteak factory on my own. And I had never experienced anything like it. I was the only white person in a room full of black people I did not know. They all turned and looked at me. They, I felt like the music stopped when I walked in. And that was a moment where I got to experience the feeling of not belonging. Not belonging. And that was such a big moment for me. And I'll never forget it. Because it was different than being a minority in a place where I knew everybody. This was a moment where I was a minority in a place where I didn't, and I got that feeling. And black people have to deal with that feeling all the time, all the time. And here I am, I dealt with it 30 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday, because that's how powerful that feeling is. I'll never forget it. Great lesson, great lesson. Next up, as a white person, I get freedom from the burden of race. I don't carry the quote-unquote psychic weight of race. I don't have to worry about what others think of my race. I never really worry that my race will be held against me. I have role models in every field that I have worked in or ever considered working in that are white. The people that have hired me along the way have been the same race as me. When I do get hired, I don't have to worry about my colleagues thinking I only got the job because of my race. Frankly, race is a non-issue for me in the workplace. I can focus on my job without the weight of race. When racism is in the world, I don't see it as my responsibility. I get to be racially relaxed throughout my days. Now, obviously, a lot of that is changing, um, rightfully so. But that freedom from the burden of race, that's real. And that's, I think that's related to what I talk about in, in I don't want to be a tourist in these moments. I want to always remember these things. Also, as a white person, I get freedom of movement. I never have to think about my race when I think about going to any of the places that I want to go. My friends of color do not have this luxury and they tell me so. I have a friend who recently said that every time he goes on a jog, he brings his ID with him. That blew away. That was a black man. And he was telling it to a bunch of us, and many of which were white. We were blown away. I would never think to bring my ID on a jog. And I have a close friend who won't jog without his ID. That's what freedom of movement is. As a white person, I get to just be a person. As D'Angelo terms it, just people. I am white, therefore I'm just a person. I'm never referred to as the white guy or someone's white friend. I'm not the white principal of that school or the white basketball coach. I'm just a person. As a white person. Actually, I want to talk about this a little bit more, just a person. This is one where I've struggled. I'm, I'm, I personally am struggling with when do you use race as an innocent adjective and when, when you do that, are you actually perpetuating issues? So an example is I coach a girls varsity basketball team and we were going through a scout of the players on another team. 
and the other team was all white with one black girl. And I tried to describe that girl in the scout by other features and it just wasn't working. I was clearly stumbling and then I ended up saying the black girl. And the one black girl on my team kind of giggled and kind of like gave me the moment and and but but you know acknowledged that it was a moment and I just never I actually really need to follow up with her but I just I never understood and I don't understand was it bad to use that description although it so quickly helped everybody know who I was talking about or is that totally innocent and I just I don't know but I do know According to D'Angelo, as a white person, I get to just be a person. All right, as a white person, I get white solidarity. This one's amazing. I never thought of it this way, and it, it'll change my thinking forever. White solidarity. This is, blank, uh, quote, the unspoken agreement among whites to protect white advantage and not cause another white person to feel racial discomfort by confronting them when they say or do something racially problematic, end quote. White solidarity. solidarity. It's hard to break free of this. The system that we live in has made white solidarity strong so that even well-intentioned people are afraid to break ranks. If we, if there's, if there's quote unquote minor racism around us, racist jokes, you know, racism that we can't explicitly see it hurting others and we're just around white people and this happens, we are socialized as white people not to say anything. It's white solidarity. We stick together. I'm not going to make you uncomfortable by calling it out. I'm not going to ruin this moment for everybody by making it awkward. In fact, if we stick with it and just if, if we partake in white solidarity, we are seen as fun, funny, and cooperative. If we don't stick with it and we point it out, point out the racism, we're immediately ostracized. Things get awkward and rarely do others back us up. We're left alone. But if we let jokes go or comments go, we are part of the problem. It's not good enough anymore to just be non-racist. We need to be anti-racist. White solidarity of all the things happening right now, I think that one of my favorite things I'm seeing is that white solidarity is starting to take some hits, some major hits. And more and more white people in the last couple of years and most importantly in the last few weeks are realizing they don't want to be part of white solidarity anymore. If they're around just white people and someone says something that is racist in any way, they're calling them out. And it's just the beginning, right? We need millions more that do this. But I, I think I think for me personally, I I definitely used to used to be part of white solidarity in certain moments. I would feel sick to my stomach. I would feel uncomfortable. I would probably avoid whoever that was in the future, but I wouldn't necessarily call it out right in the moment because again, I was just socialized to white solidarity. Just don't make it uncomfortable. Don't make anybody uncomfortable. Just he's bad and you're not and just ignore it. And now I'm realizing that we must break white solidarity. It must not be allowed anymore. As a white person, I get to think of the good old days. White privilege, according to D'Angelo, allows us to talk about the good old days. People of color can't look back to these same good old days. According to D'Angelo, this is what Trump did in the last election. He played off the good old days of white people with Make America Great Again, 
Make America Great Again. It's playing off that good old days analogy. I don't want to go down the political road right now, but the point is because I'm white, I can refer to the good old days and I need to remember that those were the good old days for white males especially. As a white person, I get white racial innocence. From our perspective, racism is not a white problem and we as white people are not expected to take any risks in order to deal with it. In fact, we are presumed innocent. It is well documented, well documented that blacks and Latinos, they're stopped by police more often and they're given harsher sentences for the same crimes as whites. That is, that is legit, that is real. You know, when, when white youth get in trouble, external factors are often blamed. Like, oh, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They have a single parent home. You know, there becomes this innocence. But when black and Latino youth are in trouble, Internal factors are more often referred to. Oh, he has no remorse. Oh, he's just prone to crime. Oh, he's just a blank, blank, blankety blank. You know, and that's white racial innocence. Even when whites, even when we acknowledge our power, we don't usually refuse or don't understand our own complicitness in having this privilege. I'm sorry, even when we acknowledge our privilege, we don't completely get it. And we don't realize we're complicit in the privilege. It's not like a Christmas gift that's just handed to us. We are participating in the privilege. It's not just something that we didn't ask for. It's something that we're part of. But mainly, we get to live lives that are innocent of race as white people. And the last one, as a white person, I get the option to live a segregated life. White people of all the different racial groups are the most likely to segregate themselves. Classifications of which neighborhoods are good and which are bad are almost always based on race. Upward mobility is the ultimate goal in America. And the further you go up, the whiter it is. That school is, quote, urban or has low test scores are often code words for that school has many students of color. So many people of color can verbalize how hard it was for them to be a minority in a mostly white school. And this hits home for me. Not for me personally, but for me as an educator. The same schools that we call good and safe can actually be awful for kids of color. Many parents of color who want the advantage of their children going to the top schools also have to worry about the social and emotional toll that being one of the only minority kids will take on them. This is certainly something we will talk more about uh, when I have a panel of educators here. But this is real. I'm an educator. I've been a teacher. I've been a principal. I've been an assistant principal. I've been in Boston, the Bronx, Springfield, East Longmeadow. I've been in schools of very different racial, cultural, and socioeconomic demographics, and this is real. It is not easy for minority students in mainly white school environments. And segregation is real. If, if white people really want to, we can go through most of our lives without knowing many people of color, at least not knowing them deeply. And this is an option that we have. We have this option to live a segregated life. It's a white society we live in. People of color don't have this option. So in sum for this chapter, by being white, I get a continual sense of belonging. I get freedom from the burden of race. I get freedom to go wherever I want without worrying about my race. I get to be just a person without a racial label. I get to benefit from white solidarity. I get to think about the good old days. 
I get to feel racial innocence, and I get to live segregated if I want to. That chapter, you know, I talked a lot last time about understanding whiteness. Well, that chapter completely changed and improved my understanding of all the things I get because I'm white. It's unbelievable. It, obviously, it's caused me to reflect a lot, and I'm only, I'm only just beginning that reflection, right? This podcast isn't the end of that reflection. This podcast is the beginning of my reflection, and I need to remember that as well. All right, chapter five, the last one we're going through. It's called The Good Bad Binary. This one's really interesting. It's quicker than the other ones, but it's really interesting. Um, this is another thing that has adapted about race, is that so, back, back, way back, there were, in society, you could be outwardly racist and still be considered a good guy by your peers. And I'm talking 50 years ago before, pretty much before the civil rights movement, quote unquote, he's not a, I'm sorry, you could, back then, that's how you could be. You could be racist and you could still be considered a good person. But after the civil rights movement, that quickly or slowly slash quickly changed. And now it's, it's, it's really, society wants us to think it's one or the other. You're either a racist, bad person, or you're a not racist, good person. It's the good, bad binary. It's, it's black and white only. There's no middle ground according to the way racism has evolved. Quote, unquote, he's not a racist. He's a really good guy. How many times have we heard that? He's not a racist. He's a really good guy. D'Angelo says this is the most important adaptation of racism. Because of this, to be accused of racism as a white person immediately makes us defensive and even shut down. Because if I'm racist, I'm a bad person. So I can't be racist because I'm not a bad person. So I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to say anything I can. I'm going to tell you I have black friends. I'm going to tell you I love all people. I'm going to tell you I don't act that way. I'm going to do whatever I can to prove to you immediately that I'm not racist. Because the good bad binary teaches me that if I'm racist at all, I'm a bad person. It's powerful powerful when you think of it that way. It helps us shut everything down. That's how white fragility maintains itself because anytime we are threatened, we shut it down and we get defensive. Instead of the good bad binary, D'Angelo teaches us that racism is to different degrees is all around us. It doesn't just have to be extreme and in our face to exist. It's all around us. Go back to that TED talk I mentioned in episode one. I loved that where the guy said we, we treat, it's the same thing as the good bad binary. We treat racism like it's cancer. You either have cancer or you don't. And he said it's not that way. You can have a little plaque on your teeth. You can have a little racism. You can have a little racism in that moment and no racism in the next moment. It, it, that's how it is. It's, a, it's on a continuum. We can't continue thinking that racism is discrete acts committed by bad people. And if we don't do that, then we're not at all racist. We don't ever take action because we're not racist, right? If we are accused of a racist moment, instead of trying to listen and understand what we did, we defend ourselves because of this good-bad binary. Again, we just keep defending ourselves. Then we, like I said, we say we're not racist because we work in a diverse, diverse environment or we have people of color in our family. But if that's, if our evidence that we are not racist is that we have black friends, 
then how are we defining racism? Does this mean that a racist person could never have a black friend? Or if we say we're not racist because I'm not racist because I work in a diverse environment, does this mean a racist person could never work in a diverse environment? Is it that simple to be not racist? Do you just need to do like one thing like that? Obviously the answer is no. But when we say, I'm not racist, I got black friends. That's what we're acting like. We're acting like it's that simple. It's the opposite of that simple. D'Angelo points out, think of it in, as, in terms of gender instead, right? So when I married my wife, a woman, I did not suddenly say that I totally understood woman, women or that I instantaneously was free of all gender socialization. Of course not. I, yeah, I married a woman. Doesn't mean I understand women. Doesn't mean I'm free of socialization around male and females and different roles and different stereotypes. That All of that still exists. I just married a woman and I love her. But the same goes for race. Just loving someone of color does not mean that we suddenly escape all other socialization. Racism is not a good, bad binary. Here's the big sentence. We need to think about racism on a continuum. When you realize it's on a continuum and much of it is a product of deep socialization, you get less defensive and more focused on changing it, right? So there's other parts of our upbringing that has socialization within it, that we, we embrace what that socialization did to us. And if we need to do better than that, we work through that socialization to try and improve ourselves. But the good bad binary tells us we're either racist or not. And therefore, we don't acknowledge that, you know, I was socialized in a white society as a white man. And therefore, it's in there somewhere, at least parts of it. And I need to work through that. I need to understand, ooh, that, the way I was thinking about that may have had a little racism in it, right? But now I see it, and now I'm not going to think that way anymore. And if you catch me thinking that way or talking that way, tell me, because I want to get that out of my socialization. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means I was socialized this way in this society and now I'm identifying little moments, little moments here and there when I could be better and when I could be less racist. It's so powerful when you think of it that way. I just can't, it just changes everything. You know, our level of racism depends on exactly what we're doing in any given moment. And the bottom line is now, I need to spend my whole life actively and consciously working to move in the right direction on this continuum. A lot to think about. And by the way, part of working to move in the right direction on this continuum for me right now, and maybe for you, is I need to keep pointing out racism when I see it. I need to keep pointing it out. That's a good next step for me on that continuum. So the good, bad binary, don't fall for it. It's a continuum. All right. So to sum up my big takeaways, I got four of them. First, racism adapts and we must keep an eye outward and inward to identify its many new forms. There's colorblind racism, there's aversive racism, there's cultural racism. We need to be on the lookout for all of these things and point them out. Number two, white privilege is important to understand, but it's almost limiting in its scope. 
We get more than just privileges. We get full lives that can be completely isolated race from race. I'm sorry, completely isolated from race. We get continual feelings of belonging, of segregation, of freedom of movement, of innocence. And you know, like I said, belonging strikes me the most. The fact that we get to live every moment of our lives for the most part with that sense of belonging, I need to remember that. I need to acknowledge that that's something I get that people of color don't get and that completely alters our day-to-day existence. And I need to understand that. I need to understand that belonging. White solidarity is my takeaway number three. This is the one I'm going at the hardest right now. It's a complete, white solidarity is a completely unspoken agreement amongst whites to stick together, to not disrupt the system, and to not call each other out on racism. As white people, we need to attack this one. We can end white solidarity. We can end white solidarity. And in each one of our social circles, we can end white solidarity. And we need to be working at that. If someone shows any sign of racism when there's no people of color around, even if there are people of color around, it is, at this point, it is white people's job to point it out. This has fallen on people of color long enough. This is our job as white people to point it out. If you see racism, point it out. And my fourth big takeaway is that racism is on a continuum. It's not one big yes or no. As a white person, admitting this is liberating because we've spent, it's tiring trying to not be racist sometimes, right? Because even though we don't realize it and it's subconscious, it's, it's there. It's, we're socialized this way and, we're, and we get tense and we get defensive and all of that comes with, you know? And when you start to realize this is on a continuum and in every moment we could be in a different place on the continuum, it's liberating. It, liberating sounds like a funny word to use, but it is. It's, it's, racism is on a continuum and we need to remember that. We, we, get, we get to stop guarding our perception, right? That's what's been happening. We're guarding our perception. How are we perceived? Am I perceived as racist? Once you realize it's on a continuum, and by the way, it's a product of socialization, then we can stop guarding our perception. It's like our shoulders can go down and we can start talking, listening, and improving. You know, along with this one, most black people know that even their close white friends can have moments when they're a little racist, right? So even though when we buy into the good-bad binary and we're constantly fighting any perceptions of us as being racist, I know that our friends of color and our family of color, they know that we still make mistakes. They know that we can have moments where we're a little racist. So it's, it's not a secret to them. We're only, we've only been fooling ourselves, right? We've only been fooling ourselves. So... Let's stop fooling ourselves. Let's remember it's on a continuum. Let's self-reflect often and make sure we're headed in the right direction on that continuum. So keep an eye out for any form of racism. Never forget the scope of the systematical benefits we as white people experience. Be a crusader against white solidarity and self-monitor your own racism on the continuum. Man, I hope you like these three chapters because I learn so much it's indescribable from these three chapters and i appreciate you listening and letting me sort of talk to you about the chapters and then self-reflect along the way so i thank you so much for joining i'll be putting out another episode wrapping up the book white fragility uh in the next week 
You can check us out as a group at NPTEducation.com. We're here to help school leaders inspire, improve, and sustain. You can email us on the website if we can help you in any way in your own school leadership. And again, thank you for joining me on the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Have a great week. Yeah, yeah, yeah.